Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And it's time for us to finish our look back on the seasonal coverage for 2018. That's right, it's the review show for fall. And 2018 can finally come to a close. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) It's been 10 years since 2018 started. (laughs) It sure feels that way. But no, um, I think overall, uh, we ended with a pretty solid, uh, set of anime. So... Yeah. A little sad to see that specific thing go, and basically nothing else. Yeah. But before we get to all the great, and maybe not so great, shows that we watched for that season, it's a little bit of news for us to catch up on. Not a ton, but you know, uh... A couple of things that we can talk about that happened since the last time we talked. First off, we have an official ending for Fate Grand Order, at least the story of Fate Grand Order. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. That uh, that's supposed to end with uh, with the second major arc, and who knows what's going to be happening after that. Yeah, Kinoko Nasu has said that the story line of Fate Grand Order is going to end after the second arc, which it's in the middle of, correct? Yes, it's about halfway through. Okay. And he says that, like, the plot has already been completely, like, figured out and approved by Anaplex, so there's no concerns with it actually coming out. Like, this is a harder end to anything compared to, like, I don't know, Gintama, or like, Wannies, or Bleach, or any of those, like, this is an actual hard ending, like, I have written it. Yeah, yeah, it's nice that a creator is actually able to finish the thing they're writing on their terms. Yeah. I can't, I still can't believe that Gintama took so long to end that it had to move magazines, like, Shonen Jump was like, alright dude, you've had your time, get out. And he moved to a different irregular magazine so that he could finish the story. (laughs) I'm still a little baffled that Gintama has a story. And he started a new series. The guy started a new series, (laughs) son of a bitch. (laughs) There's no hope left. (laughs) No escape. Speaking of, though, um, uh, Ichiro Oda, uh, creator of One Piece, has explicitly stated... Quote, the end of the manga is near. Uh, As someone who keeps up with One Piece, I am am (laughs) unsure of when this could possibly be, seeing as how we're in another major arc, and we are one act of question marks into it. He noted that the manga is planned to have just over 100 volumes. Okay, now I need to look at how many there are now. I think the 91st just finished releasing in Japan. It has been collected into over 80 volumes. It's the it seems that he is has an ending in mind. I It's going to be interesting to see how that turns out, how the potential ending of this is going to be. Mhm. He also says, like, you know, he's planned it since college, and if anyone ever guessed it and he saw, he would change it. (laughs) So, like, I don't know how that plays into his plans for, like, ending the manga, but, you know. I mean, could anyone really guess the ending of One Piece at this point? 
No, I don't think so. I think no one could. <laughs> or if anyone did, it would be too like direct for Oda. Like it would have like Oda's like mo- already like five steps ahead of everyone else in guessing what the ending is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would. So it would have to come from an inside source, and Oda will find them and destroy them. Hmm. The the interview in which he says all this too also includes a bit where the the interviewer asks if like the one piece treasure at the end of everything is going to be like family bonds or like the friends we made along the way and basically Oda just goes like no i hate that <laughs> <laughs> i think that sucks ass that rule <laughs> cuz he's like and he's and he specifically knows like yeah that happened in the wizard of oz too and even as a kid i was like where's the treasure <laughs> <laughs> that rules i'm glad the One Piece is going to be some sort of treasure or something. Yeah, so don't worry. One Piece is something. I hope it's just like a giant gold orb. <laughs> In Oda's likeness. <laughs> but yeah, so... And again, we can go back to the numbers where he says, like, how much of the percent of the manga he's finished. But, like, I feel like that's a fool's errand at this point where... Yeah. Who knows if Oda's even telling the truth at this point. Man. Either way... I guess look forward to the ending of One Piece sometime. Sometime. At least after nine more volumes. <laughs> we can guarantee that much, but other than that, uh, shit out of luck, buddies. In terms of, like, other notable shonen authors, Atsushi Okubo, the writer of Soul Eater, has announced that uh, the the anime for his newest manga, Fire Force, is coming out this year, 2019. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember kind of starting to read that and then just sort of falling off for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I've heard from other, like, fans of Soul Year 2. It's like, eh, it's not really what I'm looking for, you know? Yeah. That's that's still cool. Like that seems like a very quick turnaround, but I guess again after something like Soul Eater, you're going to you're going to pull in, you know, pull in support. Yeah. Didn't the um the manga author for Yu-Gi-Oh start something that wasn't actually Yu-Gi-Oh related? Yeah, no, he he did something and it was like a it was it was like a short series. Hmm. And he ran it I think in Shonen Jump because of like a an anniversary sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, I haven't had that time to check that out, but I've heard that that's really good and, like, goes into, like, it it sounds like it's just, like, oh, this guy writes manga or whatever, and it's, like, maybe autobiographical, and then it's, like, also, like, a mystery series, so. Yeah, it it makes me glad that he's able to write something that isn't Yu-Gi-Oh! and is more like what he wanted to do with, like, early Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, I think it also benefits from the fact, like, he hasn't actually had to work on Yu-Gi-Oh! in, like, so long, so he's just, like, had time to sit on that and be like, okay, once something really comes to me, I can work on it. Yeah, that's fair. And so, that's appreciated, right? Like, he only gets to put out the things he really likes, and occasionally he has to draw, like, the Dark Magician for another card or whatever. (laughs) So, now for some quick video game news. Uh, apparently, the way that the uh, Kingdom Hearts, like, epilogue and secret videos are being released is changed now that we're at, like, a new console generation. Oh, right, yeah, that's... that. So I what they're doing here. is they're they're patching it in afterwards? 
Yeah, so filthy, dirty leakers don't get to see the ending before anybody else. Yeah, I think it's like, on launch day, there's a release with, like, archive videos, and that's when all, like, the, the day one stuff happens, and then epilogue video day after, and then after that is the secret video. And you get access to them if you've already accomplished all the things, you just don't get to see them until those days, in case you're the kind of person who wants to ruin it for everyone. Or you're a speedrunner or something. Right, and you're trying to ruin it for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least that means I have a couple days to beat the game, though. Yeah, and it seems like a pretty smart move, all things considered. Like, for as big as Kingdom Hearts 3 as a release is, like, smart to be like, okay, guys, you know, we know that you guys are excited and we know that you want to have some time to be able to enjoy it on your own. So, you don't have to worry about this for at least a couple days. Yeah. God, it's wild that it's half a month away. Yeah, right? We are in the month that Kingdom Hearts 3 releases for real. The 13th month of 2018. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it all along. God. Then, also, 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim, finally, like, showing up in video games. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Vanillaware released the first trailer in 2015, and since then, nothing. Except for that they delayed the game's release from 2018 to Undetermined, and also they canceled the Vita version. Rest in peace, Vita. Other than that, it's just like, well, this game's still coming out. Don't worry, guys. But we do know that officially... March 14th, in Japan, they are releasing a three-hour demo, or the first three hours of gameplay, as a prologue on the PlayStation 4 online store. Yeah, I'm finally we get to know what the hell the gameplay actually is going to be. <laughs> yeah, because again, we have seen nothing. <laughs> uh, one thing to note is that uh, save data from the demo is not transferable to the main game. Mm-hmm. Which seems a little weird. I'm finally excited to see what that is. Like, Yeah, extremely. It's been four years since we saw the opening video, which is just like, yes, this is a Vanillaware game. You've shown me a Vanillaware game with no gameplay, so I mean, sure, I'm in for it. I mean, we know it has teens, and we know it has robots. Right, that's so, about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it- if it is a mech action game with that level of anim- animation detail, that's going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. And it is directed by the person who did Odin Sphere and uh, Dragon's Crown. Yeah, Kamitani. Yeah, so maybe more action-oriented. Again, we know nothing, so here's hoping it's good. Yep. Hopefully that demo in some way comes to the West, or, you know, there's some Western coverage of it, because I'd like to see what it is ahead of time. Yeah, yeah same here. And then the last piece of news in mm, one of the more tone-deaf things to happen (laughs) in the West in terms of anime uh, for a while is the live-action Death Note movie used a real footage from a real train accident without permission. Uh... So there's a scene where someone's reporting on a train accident, and apparently... It's from a actual Belgian train disaster from 2010, and they never asked permission, and apparently a lot of people 
rightfully were upset about the fact that they have to relive this horrible thing uh, in a fucking movie about a cartoon man who <laughs> gives people a book that kills other people. I'm trying to think of words, but they ain't coming. <laughs> it's very concerning. Yeah. And I wonder what that means. I, I assume that there's got to be some kind of, like, legal action coming out of this or something. So, like, I, I, bad news for folks who are really looking forward to Death Note 2, I think. Because <laughs> I feel like at the very best it's going to be delayed with all this going on. Yeah. I, I still can't just form words about this. Like, what the <laughs> hell? Yeah, it's, it's really bad and lacking in tact in so many ways. It's... Wow. Wow. Ugh. Anyways, enough of darkness. Now it's time for beauty. The beauty of anime. Hooray. So, let's start talking about all the shows we watched. And let's start with... Golden Kamui, Season 2. Alright, so Golden Kamui picks up where Season 1 left off, uh, with Sugimoto and Asaripa heading towards um, Abashiri Prison to try and meet up with Noparabo, who uh, killed a bunch of Ainu and stole their gold and hid it away. And they want to try and determine if Noparabo really is uh, Asaripa's father or not. And this second season follows their journey towards Abashiri and the eventual meeting with him. And it's a really good show. Like, it, it's kind of amazing how much more I liked it in season two because it managed to have a lot more strong emotional beats than season one did. Yeah, the, the bit of coverage I saw was definitely saying, like, season two, content-wise, is a lot stronger than season one. Yeah, yeah, I one of the things that it does is it makes sure that every character feels very human, even though every character is also incredibly weird. They're also all very, <laughs> very human, and you definitely get a sense of where everyone's sort of coming from. It, it's honestly been a real treat to see, you know, a show do this sort of thing with big beefy men that the author just also the author just likes drawing big beefy men it's it's really good <laughs> it's also really horny at times but not for the ladies for the big beefy men right well of course yeah if you like big beefy men being very emotional uh you should definitely give golden kamui a watch <laughs> yeah i feel like that was always the big thing is like yeah, Golden Kamui is good, story-wise. Also, very, like, homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, the author. <laughs> you definitely get that sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really fun show to watch. It'll make you tear up. It'll make you, uh, it'll make you smile, it'll make you cheer, that, that sort of stuff. I, it's definitely one of my more favorite shows that I watched this season, and given that, uh, that both seasons aired last year, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So is the tone of the, the second season more serious overall? Like, it feels like it's really getting into plot stuff now that it sets stuff up, or...? Um, it it more or less continues on the same as before. It strikes a nice balance between drama and being really goofy, because it can be really, really goofy with its, with its cast. Um, mm -hmm. I think one thing to mention is that 
For whatever reason, the anime glosses over some stuff, particularly some important character building stuff. I don't know why, but I guess it's because they wanted to try and fit everything into two seasons. Because, uh, uh, I don't know. I guess they wanted to try and fit everything into two seasons without going on because they maybe didn't know if they were going to get a third season. Sure. Apparently the manga just, you know, has more good content for you if you want to take that in. Alright, sure. I mean, I feel like that's bound to happen and boy howdy, the the next one we're going to talk about also has that issue. (laughs) With omitted content? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but all right, it's good it's good to hear that it like improved because I know people were very critical of season 1. Uh do you feel like the animation is any better or is it pretty on par? It's definitely gotten better. They definitely figured out how to get those goofy faces that everybody likes more as they've worked with the product more. It's it's been a really nice thing to see it grow into a, a much better product from its first episode or so. All right, cool, cool. Now, uh, similar vein, I, I basically put it here because it's two, like, action stories, but, uh, hearing that there's, like, more omitted, like, character content, uh, yikes, Banana Fish. Mmm? <laughs> so, Banana Fish has ended now, and for being a 24-episode adaptation of what I think is a 37-volume manga... Uh-huh. It... It tries. <laughs> I wish I had something nice to say about it, but I, I feel like, at best, it tries. It has to omit a lot of sort of the slower, more character-related moments, especially in the relationship between the two mains, Eiji and Ash, that really hmm. develop them as friends, possibly as, like, romantic partners. And it it definitely suffers from that because you... You don't really get the idea that the relationship is is as strong as the narrative wants you to think it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, I I went into the second half, and, like, the second half is when the plot part of Banana Fish really starts to pick up. And when everything else goes to the wayside, because there is so much story in Banana Fish. A lot, huh? So, Banana Fish starts out, it's like, oh, it's like a mafia story about this guy who breaks out from his uh, abusive life in sort of one of the big New York mafias and his trying to get back at the the person who took him captive. And very quickly spirals into there is an experimental drug being made and used on soldiers in Iraq in order to create basically perfect killing machines and... Uh, the mafia is involved in it, and somehow it ties into the Chinese mafia in New York as well, and goes all the way up to the American government, which has a huge conspiracy going on, not only with uh, child sex trafficking, but also with this drug and, like, the military. And it just, it expands in a way that's like, yes, you are writing a pulp story, but also I'm looking at it as a very comical, just like, how many steps it keeps taking. <laughs> And it's not even just like, oh, it's like, oh, the story keeps getting weird, but it's like, again, I talked about it the first time. There's a lot, there's a lot of sexual assault in this series, and it's really tragic, and it's never depicted, but like, it happens within the series, and one thing that keeps happening is like, it seems like every villain has like, sexually assaulted main character Ash in one way or another throughout his life. And multiple times on screen, it's really something. 
Ah, a cheap writing tactic. It it definitely feels that way. Again, like I understand it's like pulpy, and I under and I understand like where the interest in that comes from. Like you know, seeing like that sort of American thriller sort of thing. But it's it really doesn't come off with a lot of tact. Yeah, like that. That definitely sounds like what it would ha- what it would feel like if it was the same thing with literally every villain. Yeah, and like. There are, like, things to that, like, I I saw people writing about how, like, so much of Banana Fish is about, like, the futility of revenge because Ash never actually kills and gets the- or gets the chance to kill anyone who has taken advantage of him or, you know, like, you know, been cruel to him throughout his life, and so all of his, like, revenge stuff is- is rendered hollow because of that, like, Everyone still takes care of him, and ultimately it shows just how much, like, how futile the the way his way of life is. Uh-huh. And the story has, like, some really good moments where it, like, contrasts, like, uh, Ash and one of the um, villains, Yutlung, or I, I guess, like, a villain, kind of a rival. And it's about how, like, these people who have been through so much trauma as children and the way that they deal with it. Like, Ash as a character is very tragic, and he has one person in his life, Eiji, who he meets, and he's able to sort of find someone who doesn't judge him for who he is, and just, like, thinks of him as a good guy in, like, a really bad situation. And Yutlung is so jealous of that that he tries to go out of his way to ruin, like, everyone's life because he hates that he can't have someone that accepts him. He can't accept himself as anyone else. So, like, there are character beats to the story that are, like, good and that I appreciate, but, like, so much of it is wrapped up in what feels like a very rushed story. And, again, just, like, it feels really tasteless in, you know, 2018 to have all of this, like, sexual assault kind of stuff, all of this sort of, like, pulp, you know, these pulp story beats in it. So it's like, you know, it rides a hard line. And nothing about the setting being adapted to be modern times, which is another thing that this adaptation did, like, I don't feel like it benefits anything. It feels like it almost, like, pulls away from, like, at least you could, like, go, okay, this was written for a particular time, it's written in a particular time, you know, Vietnam War and everything. And so that makes a lot more sense than trying to put it into modern times, and it, it just feels like it, it loses something by that. And it crams in all of this stuff in the second half of the show in 13 episodes. Um, it doesn't cram it all in, it's just, like, that's when everything starts to build? Like, because it's like, oh, you know, now we have to get all of the other gangs together, and now we need to get them to work together because they have this common enemy, and suddenly everyone's related in this way. Like, it just feels like so much more happens in the back half. Like, the first half is somehow set up for something that should have been, like, I don't know, six, eight more episodes? Yeah, this sounds like trying to have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah, it's it's a very messy adaptation, and also I feel like pulling it away from its modern context also loses something from the fact that, like, you know, at a, at a point, Banana Fish, as, like, the drug and the thing that creates super soldiers, like, had, like, a correlation because, you know, like, you know, at the time that it was written, like, we were dealing with, like, Agent Orange and all kinds of other, like, chemical warfare shit that I feel like 
resonates a bit more in a time where that was like a much bigger deal than something like now. So it definitely feels like a product of its time. Yeah, I feel like it's more appropriate to have kept it in the time frame that it was originally written instead of trying to make it more modern. Because again, the fact that it's modern doesn't add a lot. And really, in the most part, it seems like it clashes with stuff. Because like, when they have to like hack computers, they're hacking like Windows 98 machines. <laughs> okay, so they half-assed that, huh? Yeah, like, it. everything still feels very old and like, there's ultimately no difference from them saving this data on a floppy drive than, like, a USB stick. And, like, again, nothing takes advantage of the, the modernization except that they can, like, say, oh, this is just, like, CSI when they talk about, like, doing crime stuff. This, I feel like this is maybe a wrong comparison, but it feels like it, this is, like, the, what the Pokemon anime did to prove that, no, this is definitely an American show. Oh, look at those jelly donuts. And all that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in some ways, because it's like, oh, but they also, like, literally say CSI, right? It's not like this is, like, a thing that they added for the for the, the subs or anything. Oh it's, my it's god. A, I don't know, it's, it's a little, like, you know, it feels maybe a little pandery, I don't know. Again, I haven't, I haven't read the manga, but, like, ultimately what I come down with this is, like, this seems like a fine show and something better contextualized within the manga and understanding that this was written, you know, 30 years ago. All right, I get you. Or whatever. So yeah, it's like, yeah. In conclusion, Banana Fish is a land of contrasts. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. But if we want to talk about something wholesome and good, just like unquestionably, we can talk about skull-faced bookseller Honda-san. Yeah. Yeah, our good friend Skeleton. So, uh, Skull-Faced Bookseller Honda-san is a series about a bookstore, really, and the people that work at it. The The gimmick is that the main character is uh, portrayed as a skeleton. This never comes up in any way, it's just, like, a way, I guess, to protect innocence, or the fact that he can't draw faces. Like, everything about the art style makes it very clear he can't draw faces, because everyone who works at the bookstore has a mask on, and everyone else has, like, something over their face, like a piece of paper that just says who they are, like, producer, or, you know, like... I feel like this is definitely a case of protecting identities because he doesn't want to trouble his co-workers with people going, Hey, I saw you in Thing! Right, that doesn't make sense, because now I realize, like, all of the, like, characters that they deal with at the bookstore have faces. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, but, um... But yeah, it's basically just about, like, what it's like to work at a bookstore. Like, the jokes just come from, like, the weird customers they have to deal with, really. Like, there's nothing, like, inherently comedic about the premise. It's just, like, it's like a slice of life, but with jokes, you know? Like, explicit jokes. It, it feels like a really authentic workplace comedy. Yeah, for sure, uh-huh. Like, you know, we have, like, the wacky ones, like, working or the blend s or things like this 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 one feels very direct like just overreactions to like a grown man asking like hey my daughter wants me to buy this book and it's like hardcore yaoi porn right like yeah like it's situations that you could encounter in real life and go oh my god help but also this is really funny in hindsight right and all of it feels like real which is i think yeah. the thing that really helps with that like again you could just imagine like working at a bookstore and someone going, hey, do you have this book and it's pornography? Yeah. 
or the you know the the father and son who come in like really excited about the new uh the new book of Naruto or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like there's a lot of really wholesome stuff in it too that's like very charming just like you know sometimes it's not so bad working here but also it's hell. Yeah. As they like get cursed out over the phone for not having something in stock. Yeah, but also like you said there's like nice wholesome moments of this grandma just said thank you for helping me pick out her book, and I'm so happy. I'm scared that the next customer is going to be an asshole. Yeah. And it's a short series, which I think really benefits it. And it's just like, it's very fluffy. You know, it it is exactly what it wants to be, which is just like a slightly dramatized version of real life. And I think it does that really well. Yeah, it's... it's a nice glimpse into a world that you probably never even considered, especially if you're watching it, you know, in the West. Yeah, and it's very, like, informative of just, like, how they, you know, handle, like, trying to make, like, big-selling books go, you know, like, and how they order and organize everything. Like, you know, it it makes you think about these sorts of things, like, when you walk into a bookstore. Yeah, even if, presumably, Japan has a bit of a different bookstore culture than our own. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a fun light series about working and it's it's really cute like yeah, it's got a lot of charm to it and I while it started off like a little bit rough, I grew, you know, I it was just, you know, a nice treat to watch every week. Yeah, and if you like memes, uh Honda-san's casual clothes kind of look like Sans Undertale. I hate that I never noticed that until someone pointed it out. <laughs> now, for maybe a different sort of work comedy series, we have Mr. Tonegawa, Middle Management Blues, which just finished. So, um, as I stated previously, uh, Mr. Tonegawa is a spinoff of the series uh, Ultimate Survivor Kaiji, and focuses on sort of the, the shady organization that sets up all of the death games that Kaiji goes to. Yeah, the, the focus is primarily on just like what it's like to work for such a terrible company. And so, uh, I feel like season two was a much stronger set of episodes than season one. Really? I remember you hearing hearing you say that season one was pretty good too. It was, but like, I feel like in the first season, it's like, it's, it's, it was very focused on one particular series of events from the original, uh, from the original story. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the, the second one branches off in ways that's like, doesn't require as much knowledge of Kaiji, which I think is something that's really beneficial to a series like this that maybe, you know, is supposed to get you interested. Nice. And part of that is because uh, a number of the stories are cut up into focusing on Tonegawa and the way he has to deal with managing a team of people to create these death games or make his boss happy. And also, a character from later in Kaiji, who works in the underground hell mines uh, for this organization. And basically, he runs, like, a a gambling group underground, and every so often, he makes enough money off of cheating people out of their hard-earned money to, like, go up onto the surface for a day and just, like, relax and do whatever. And so, we're interspersed between, like, very serious, like, work drama sort of stuff, and also, like, just this, like, kind of chubby guy going around, like, talking about what the foods he likes around Japan, and just, like, 
not getting into like really wacky situations, but just like other like weird happenstances as he like just travels and like takes a nice day off of uh, working in hell mines. I I had to pause for a moment when you said the underground hell mines because I did not think that was a phrase that would show up when talking about Kaiji. Yeah, so uh, later in Kaiji, there's a part where Kaiji uh, loses a game and is sent into the underground mines to work for forever. I see. And so this guy comes from that arc. And so, yeah, it's just like him going up to the, uh, up and just like, uh, yeah, he has like weird adventures. Like there's, there's one particular episode I really like where he is like working on improving his business underground. And, you know, like he's like trying to figure out how to sell snack services to people and like continue to bring in money for himself and his friends. And this other guy has been saving up money in another group in the underground to, like, show movies, and so he bought an iPad that basically has, like, a Netflix account. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's showing people movies, and now no one wants to get snacks or play games and gamble or whatever. People want to go watch the movies. And so, you know, it's about him going up, and he's like, I'm going to go up the same day that this guy does to download some movies. I'm going to try to get him drunk, and then I'm going to set up this, like, joint business venture with him where we can work together. <laughs> that sounds really good. Yeah, it's a really good episode, made even better by the fact that, like, it works so well as a standalone story. Like, you don't need to be invested in the characters to still find humor and drama in this situation. But yeah, things like that, and just, like, and then the, the, the workspace one, it deals with just, like, fun things where it's, like, uh, 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 Tonegawa goes all in with his boss buying, like, racehorses. And Tonegawa's racehorse is really good, while the other one is really bad, so they trade? (laughs) Or, I guess the boss pretends that that horse was always his, and he has to go along with it. And then, Tonegawa's horse gets really good again! (laughs) And, like, it's just the- it's the politics of trying to make it look like he does- he's, you know, he's not gonna get fired, because his horse is accidentally good. It- it- it's a lot more, like, separated from Kaiji in a fun way. Alright. And the, the, the one last thing that does connect it to Kaiji is they go into sort of the last game of Kaiji season one, but the entire time they're just like, they say the name, the human derby, and then they'll say like, this is too grotesque and violent and just evil to show on TV. So they keep showing like, just the same like, uh, area shots of where the human derby takes place. <laughs> <laughs> and like, the characters will go, Oh, it's so horrible. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. How could someone come up with something so cruel? And then the narrator goes, And we can't show it to you. We really wish we could, but we can't. Go watch Kaiji. <laughs> and it's the best, like, final, like, absolutely go watch the show that we're advertising sort of thing at the end of the series. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's really good. I Ultimately, I'm very happy with Mr. Tonegawa. I think... The second half definitely, like, steps up the game in terms of, like, being able to enjoy it without the knowledge of other series. And, again, there's also, like, I keep talking about plots because I, I love it so much. There's one where, like, a, a Twitter account specifically against the company starts up, and it gets more followers than their official account. And so there's, like, this Twitter war between the two accounts. God, you reminded me about the whole Twitter bit in, uh, in Honda-san. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Does he do the tweeting thing? 
And this one, and it's really good because it's like, it's a form, it's like, they have to teach Tonegawa, this like, middle-aged man, how to tweet, and so they're teaching him how to say like, lol, and like, how to like, <laughs> download gifs and memes and stuff. <laughs> oh my god. Like, it's just, it's really charming because it's just like, teaching him how to use Twitter, because otherwise he's just like, tweeting about the weather, and like, talking about how great his company is, it's like, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta get with the youth. And he's like, learning how to draw fan art of popular anime. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the least veiled K-On parody in the world. It's really good. <laughs> because that's what the 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 troll Twitter account is doing. It's just like it has a fan art of K-On where it's like, I hope Azunyan never learns about sweatshops. Just like <laughs> Oh, it's very good. Alright. So yeah, that's that's Tonegawa. Now, to pull away from office drama and just talk about some good feel-good shows let's start with today's menu for the imia family all right so i've been watching this for uh for one year now and it's still the same show as it was before uh today's menu for the imia family is a spin-off of fate stay night that basically just has all the characters doing nice daily activities and someone usually cooks up a meal and it's just uh, it's a nice slice of life show that also teaches you how to make a food if you want to make a food. And it's really nice just seeing all of these characters not want to murder each other and instead they just interact with each other and bounce off of each other. And it's just a really fun show to see. All right. Um, is it over now? I think it was done at 13 episodes. Yep. It finished up with the New Year's episode and it actually was a New Year's episode, just like how the December episode was the Christmas episode. Okay. And again, they, they release it like once, a, just on the first day of every month. Yep, first day of every month for a year and a month. Weird schedule, but hey, you know? Yeah, they, uh, who did that? I think it was, uh, Ufotable. Yep, Ufotable did it, which yeah. is weird because it looks so unlike everything else Ufotable's ever done. Yeah, yeah, the the art style is nice and soft compared to every other Fate anime, which is, I guess, has harsher line art and such, but mm -hmm. it's just really, really charming and really, really good. It's It was just so nice to see. Uh, it also made me really hungry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's nice to see a Fate thing where, like, the characters just get to enjoy themselves. <laughs> Yeah, they have a lot of nice goofs in there. They have... I don't know, I've, I've been talking about this show for months, so I don't really have anything else to say about it. It's just really nice to see the, the fake characters not want to murder each other, and it's it's fairly... It's sort of self-contained, but at the same time, some of the character humor is lost if you don't know, like, the general specifics of the characters. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I really enjoyed watching for this past year. That's good, and it... it it's kind of nice that you just, like, first of every month, you have something to look forward to. Like, it's a weird yeah. release schedule, but it's like, oh, you know, it's something that's regular, and you're sure that it's, like, gonna have some pretty good quality, even though they have all this extra time to make it. Yeah, it's really well animated. So, at this point, what of Fate hasn't seen an anime adaptation? Um... I believe right now they are putting out the second of the three movies for the final route, which was uh, Heaven's Feel, which is the one that people are 
Yeah, there was the mm-hmm. Unlimited Blade Works anime, and Heaven's Feel is getting three movies, and this is the second one. And that, I think, just came out in Japan, so... Out of the original visual novel, after the third Heaven's Feel movie is released, it will have been fully adapted. Okay, and just, like, I don't, what about the rest of the, the Fate family? Because, like, Extra just recently got one, before that you had, like, the Prismilia. Like, what... What hasn't been touched at this point? I mean, we know Fate Grand Order's coming. They announced that. So, like, is there anything that they haven't announced or done? Uh, for what it's worth, this year we are getting two Fate animes. Uh, one of them is an adaptation of Fate Grand Order's sixth, not sixth, seventh main story arc, which is Babylonia, which is the one a lot of people think is their favorite arc. And the mm-hmm. other one that's being adapted is, um, the El Melioi the Second Case Files, which is um basically the misadventures of Waver Velvet from Fate Zero. And that feels a lot more self-contained than than other stuff from the preview episode that they released for New Year's. It's Okay. Like you just need to have watched Fate Zero and it's just the natural progression of where Waver's character goes from there, except this time he's actually the main character. But in terms of stuff that hasn't been adapted yet, it's uh, Fate Hollow Atroxia, which is a sort of sequel to the visual novel that expands on a bunch of different characters' backstories and introduces a few new ones. That's the only main Fate thing that hasn't been adapted yet. Is Extella its own thing? Extella is a sequel to Extra. Okay. And then a Western release is coming for Extella Link, which is a... I believe it's a sequel to that as well. Jesus, okay. But so there's there's still plenty of fate to to be made. Yeah. It seems. Okay. Well, good luck with that then. <laughs> Cause I they're still gonna come out. Yeah, I I will be hollering for people to watch the Babylonia anime when it comes out. <laughs> If that's where, like, Fate Grand Order gets good, I guess it's nice that you don't have to read six other stories before that. Oh, no, it it gets good at, um, well, it improves at the fifth one, and then gets really good at the sixth one, and then the seventh one maintains that quality. Okay. All right. I do remember hearing, like, you have to slog through a lot of, eh, not as good writing to get there. It's like, oh, well, at least this anime's here. Yep. 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 Taking care of me so I don't have to play this. Horrible mobile game that wants to steal my money. (laughs) And other, like, heartwarming sort of of slice-of-life stuff, we have Iriduku, The World in Colors. So this was uh, the PA Works anime from this season, and it's about Hitomi, who is a high school girl who belongs to a witch family, and she... After her mother left her when she was young, spiraled into depression that has lasted her whole life. And the metaphor they use for it is not subtle, but it is very effective in a visual medium. Because the thing that she, her issue is, is that the entire world to her is in black and white. Mm -hmm. So it does a lot of shots where it sort of contrasts what's happening in the world to how she sees it and... You know, it, it, it lets you into sort of her mental state. Mm-hmm. And so the story is that her grandmother sends her back in time to meet her grandmother 
Um, but as, like as a younger uh, as a younger person, and sort of meet a group of friends that help to help her to move forward with her life to you know to find something worth living for, worth doing. Like a, a big part of the the story of Iroduku within all of its characters is like it's it's about like self reflection and self acceptance, and it's about like finding the motivation to move forward whether that be you know like it's like it could be like in terms of like emotional state it could be terms in like in terms of like passion or inspiration it could be terms in romance like it's a group of characters that just by this the simple shakeup of someone new appearing 60 years into the past from where they're from helps them all move forward and sort of accept themselves it's a very charming, very, like, healing sort of show. Like, the last episode has a really good, like, sentence that's just the thesis of the story, which is, hey, I'm allowed to be happy, right? Like, and focuses so much on that idea of the way that people deal with depression and sort of, like, accepting it as the whole of their being. And the way, how hard it is to sort of move on from that when you've so fully accepted that something is your fault and you deserve to be punished for it. And in Hitomi's case, it's like her mother leaving, she is always accepted as her fault. And so she just has never accepted the idea that she's allowed to be happy. And, you know, it, it plays into like why she hates who she is, you know, as a magic user and the way that she comes to accept that. It's, you know, it's all the parts of you that make you someone, that make you whole. And yeah, it's it's a really nice, sweet sort of show that is very flowery, certainly in its language, but gets to a, a very good emotional core, I think. It's nice to hear that another anime is doing that sort of stuff after uh, Marsh comes in like a lion and Ancient Magus Bride. Yeah, it definitely feels like there are more stories coming out, and I think maybe some of that is like a generational thing. Where we can tell stories about, like, broken families in some ways, but also, like, you know, just being able to accept one's self no matter what, like, and understand that, you know, the circumstances that involve you are not always because of you. Because you definitely get that with March Comes in Like Lion, where it's, you know, it's not Ray's fault that he's good at Shogi, but, like, you see how he gets to that point of feeling like it's his fault because inadvertently just tears a family apart and like yeah it's and ancient mages bride too and this like it's it's so nice to have stories like this that you know really understand sort of the way that depression so can so wholly like overtake you and tell a story that's like hey you know you are not defined by these things you're defined by who you are as a person. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to watch a media, a piece of media, and feel like somebody else at least gets gets that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think that's like that kind of started a lot with like um, Mario Kata with um, Anohana, where that's another story that came out. God, I think eight years ago at this point. That was a lot about that sort of like depressive state and like you know the state of that kind of like hikikomori attitude in japan like it's nice to have these stories out there because 
you find something relatable and you you understand that like you're not alone because it's so easy to do that when you're depressed too is like feel like you're the only person who's ever felt this shitty in this particular way so yeah i think iriduka is really good and i think it's something worth checking out as like a healing anime if that's something you need is like something that's ultimately feel good because it does dabble in like high school drama because of course it does that's the story it's telling but like it's all in such a understanding and nice tone where it's like this love triangle does exist but by the end of it it's like they realize oh wait no this you, you know you don't get mad at a friend because someone else gets into them and they're not into you right like that's <laughs> that's wrong so like it it also goes against a lot of the more like familiar high school tropes to to tell like a genuine story about friends it's good to hear it's it's kind of a strange coincidence that you put this right before uh before our next show. Yeah, so the next show we have on here is SSSS Gridman, which is something I meant to look at, and just uh everything spiraled out of control, so I didn't get the chance. But I hear a lot of good things, so tell me about it, Zane. Alright, so SSS Gridman is a it's a sort of a spiritual successor to an old Tokusatsu show called um Gridman the Hyper Agent. And it's U.S. adaptation, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Which oh, is... that's so good. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, so it is sort of a spiritual successor to those two shows. Uh, it follows um, an amnesiac named Yuta, who just suddenly wakes up one day, and he starts seeing all these kaiju all over the city, and nobody else can see them. And he eventually gets two friends, uh, Rika, the girl who kind of found him unconscious, and uh, Utsumi, who, who is uh, his friend and a toku nerd. And the three of them form the Gridman Alliance as they find their city under attack by a kaiju. And Yuta is able to transform into the powerful warrior Gridman. And... It's not just about the fights. A lot of it is placed on the strange mysteries surrounding the story, as the next day after the kaiju battle, no one seems to remember the kaiju fight, and all the damage that Gridman and the kaiju did to the city was restored, and a lot of it is just trying to sort of figure out what's going on, as they try and figure out where are these kaiju coming from, and what's going on with their strange city, and... A lot of it revolves around the central villain character, uh, Akane, and her being sort of manipulated by this weird alien creature named Alexis. Uh-huh. Who definitely doesn't look like Overjustice from Luluco. <laughs> but, um, a lot of what the show does is it gets you to sympathize with Akane. You get to kind of understand her mindset and her, uh, her woes, and it eventually becomes the Gridman Alliance's goal to try and save her from herself. And it's done in a really heartwarming way, I feel. There's a lot of strong emotional beats in the show. It does a lot with a lack of music instead of constantly having music playing. Um, it's a show that I really find myself, you know, I'm shocked that Sugar was able to pull something off this good, honestly that they managed mm -hmm. to actually do a nice short series that, you know, a full 13-episode anime that was more of a drama than comedy, and it, it does it really well. Every, like, every character goes through an arc and such, and... And it doesn't just fall apart. <laughs> yeah, it didn't fall apart at all. It had a really nice, satisfying conclusion. 
and it answers just enough of the mysteries that people can still theorize about what all of this actually is, but it answers enough of them that you get the general idea of what happened. I mean, that sounds pretty good, too, where it's like, it doesn't feel like it needs to tell you everything. Like, there can still be mysteries while still satisfactorily, like, closing the door on this story. Yeah. It just feels really good to see everything, you know, everything play out as it does. Uh, I guess a warning if you're going to watch it at home, there's a beach episode, so that's going to happen. How important is the beach episode? Could you just skip it? Um, I don't think you can because it does plant an idea in your head towards the end of it. Okay. Also, it does have some nice funny bits with, uh, since the beach is so far away, they have to figure out how to get uh, Yuta the ability to transform into Gridman when the Gridman computer is at a store. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, like, it's just um, a really good toku show that manages to feel, I guess, more like an older toku show where the fights are basically saved for the end of the episode and the real meaty focus is on the drama everywhere else. And it kind of makes sense because it was written by Keiichi Hasegawa, who is the guy who started to write actual toku shows more like a J-drama. Okay. Yeah, it's... It was a really good show to see. I I like it a lot. Yeah, I've heard a lot of really good things coming out of it. So, like, that's cool. Again, it's nice to, like, especially after, you know, Trigger was attached to sort of a hot mess of a robot show. Yeah. It's cool that, like, they bounce back, as it were, to to this. Yeah, it's got some, it's got a whole lot of nice animated sequences. It's got... I don't know, I just kind of like it. I guess a complaint that could be made is Yuta is maybe a little bland, but, you know, can't have everything. But, uh, I really enjoyed it going forward, and I should probably give it a watch again to just catch all the night the, the foreshadowing and setup that it does. Mm-hmm. Now, here's another, like, mecha-esque action show coming at you with ideas from the mind behind 999. It's... The Girl in Twilight. So, I watched a, a little more than half of this series, and then uh, life hit me, and this was the show that I always kept pushing off to watch in comparison to other stuff, and eventually I just couldn't catch up. So, I dropped this part where you That's finished fair. it, right? I did finish it. I, I ate all of the junk food. So, let's talk about The Girl in Twilight, because it's a show. Yeah, it's very much a show. It's an experience. So, <laughs> in October of 2018, uh, five girls who are part of the Crystal Radio Club come upon a ritual they can use to enter an alternate world. And they do it as, like, a joke. And uh, it is very much not a joke. And it is in these alternate worlds where these girls are given basically, like, battle mech armor and have to fight against things that would ruin the multiverse, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, uh, something I realized, uh, like, near the end of the show, this is a magical girl show. Oh, it's very magical girl. (laughs) It, like, hides that a bit, but it's very magical girl. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, uh, basically, 
the setup for a lot of these shows is one girl has to serve as the vessel so that everybody else can go to the alternate worlds, and that person is the person who gets to have the hard look at themselves. Like, they go into, like, their persona dungeon, and then at the end of it, they get the power to become a magical girl, and they get cool battle armor, and then they beat up the thing that was causing the dimensional distortion, and it's really silly at times. Yeah, if I... You saying that reminds me that I think the most accurate description of this story I can think of is, like, dumb persona. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. also, all the, none of the worlds, like, really connect. They're sort of, like, tangentially related to the characters, but it's like, oh, this girl wants to be a hero of justice, so she goes to the Wild West and has to work as a sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's a cowboy for no reason, and, oh, by the way, there's horses, but also people have cars. Or like, oh, this girl has issues with, you know, being honest with herself. So she's in a world where you have to marry at a young age and just accept that. God, this show is so... And like, it's not necessarily that it's bad, but it's very clumsy. It It's very dumb and sometimes blunt about what it does. Yeah, and I feel like it's the sort of series that's like, you can tell that the person who came up with the idea was not the one writing it. Mm-hmm. And especially with a voice as, mm, distinct as Uchikoshi's. I mean, there are still horny jokes. He definitely had some role in there. Right. But like, you can tell that like, he would write these characters differently. Yeah, probably a bit better. Probably. And they don't talk nearly enough about, like, weird science conceptual ideas. No, there was not a lot of info dumping in this show. I, I, I think maybe it was just they don't have enough time. That's this is a show that really had no time for fluff or anything. It was first episode, setup. Two, every two episodes after that, character arc. Yeah, and then after the third character arc, which I guess you didn't get to see, uh, no, that's that, when the so I so that that is um that was Chloe's arc, right? Correct. That's where I finished. I ended Chloe's arc. Okay the the plot returned in full force after that. Fuck off! Fuck off, girl in Twilight. <laughs> I sat with you for half the show and you didn't have anything to say, and now you come. Ugh. Yeah, that's when the plot kicked in, because, uh, then the gang goes to Siriuska's homeworld, and the plot kicks in, and it involves, um, Asuka taking a hard look at herself, because the rest of the show is her character arc, and it uh -huh. revolves around her feeling an incredible amount of guilt over her brother disappearing and her not being able to do anything about it. So, like... The different Asukas, because, uh, one of the Asukas, other than Siriuska, uh, she became the Emissary of the Twilight, and she just sort of shut off all of her emotions compared to the main Asuka, which gets, gets all cheery to hide her emotions, and the final episode deals with both Asukas kind of reconciling what they did and trying to learn and grow from it, and it's a weirdly satisfying ending because the bits in the OP kind of make you think that Asuka's brother is the king of the Twilight, but that never gets brought up at all. The The series ends with Asuka 
sort of overcoming her guilt over the past and striving to move forward towards the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that mean you doesn't get an arc if the rest of it is Asuka's? Oh, no. She does get a part of, like, their, their two arcs are intertwined because uh, you hollers, I love you, Asuka, when she gets her magical girl transformation. Okay. What I also thought was weird about this is none of the outfits, none of the mech armor for them, like the battle suits, like have any cohesion with each other. <laughs> yeah, that rules. It's like five individual magical girls like got shoved together. Yeah, it, it rules really hard. And they're the most like non-subtle like nods at whatever their character arc was, where it's like the girl who doesn't, who's like has to deal with getting married has a fucking bridal outfit, but with, like, a gun. <laughs> or, you know, the girl who goes to the Wild West world is just a fucking cowgirl with, like, guns. Oh, shit. You reminded me of the thing where, in the last few episodes, she summons a mecha horse, and it turns into a giant gun. Yes! Oh, my God. <laughs> Ugh. If you take anything away from this, the girl at Twilight's stupid as fuck. It really is, and that's why I watch it. It was junk food garbage, and it was good. It was bad, good in the entertaining way. Yeah, it's very junk food, and I think it goes a lot between like taking too long to get to the setup, and then also like having some real stupid good payoff. <laughs> so yeah, it it's not a great show. But it it captures being a fun show pretty often. Yeah, and sometimes that's more important than being actually good. Yeah. Maybe I'll go back to it at some point, but it's just like, ugh, you know, other things came up. Yeah, but like I said, you're at the part where the plot actually kicks in. Jesus. So, now we have Zane's block of drop shows. <laughs> I'm so All right. So, uh, I only dropped the girl in Twilight, but Zane, like a smart person, thought better than to just keep watching all the things that he said he'd watch. So, tell me about the stuff that you gave up on. All right. So, I was going to watch Conception, the anime, because I thought it would be entertainingly bad, but it turns out, no, it was just regular bad, because, <laughs> uh... It was really poorly animated. Uh, it was also the most tropey archetypes for every character you could think of, except for the mascot character, who was insanely horny. <laughs> Finally, a horny animal mascot. Just what we needed. Yeah, it sucked a lot. So I kind of stopped watching it after episode two when I realized, oh, this show is just bad. <laughs> the only good thing about Conception, as far as I can tell, is the names of the episodes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, like, all but, like, one of them are variations on, will you have my child? <laughs> please, please have my baby. Here's what I, okay, so, episode one, my child? Because he, he gets the, the, the main lady pregnant, right? Like, that's the, that's the- Fake pregnant, yes. It's the, that's an inciting incident? Yes. Then episode two, I want you to have my child. Episode three, would you try having my child? Episode four, <laughs> secrets in the early afternoon. Episode five, I've got so many kids. 
Shinzo Abe, your scheme will not work. <laughs> Episode six, will you have my child, blah, blah, which I assume is the verbal tick of the horrible animal mascot. <laughs> oh my god. I wish I could. I wish you could all see the pictures I have saved of the terrible, horny anime mascot because she sucks. Oh, it's a girl too? Wow, that sucks. Yeah. Um, episode seven, please be my Chikuwa, which is a good tie-in with the girl in Twilight. <laughs> Episode 8, my child, welcome. Oh my <laughs> 9, God. let's try giving birth together. <laughs> Episode 10, my children, 13 of them? <laughs> These are all some real, like, cat Kate and 8 sort of, like, titles. It's are so you going to tell me, oh, episode 11, are you going to tell me that you want me to have your child? <laughs> episode 12, give birth to my child. Oh my God. Anyways, Conception's bad. Yeah, it's bad. Don't watch it. But in terms of, like, bad anime, I feel like that sister one was way worse. It Like, to the point where people were writing articles about how, like, the staff was, like, actively trying to die in the, <gasps> during the creation of the series. Oh, right. I believe one of the, the, uh, the animators put in an alias that was a cry for help. Yeah, it's like, please help, or it's like, we are doomed, or something like that. Because, yeah, it looks like My Sister, My Writer was, like, insanely poorly animated, just, like, top to bottom. So that was, like, the one sort of, like, if every year has to have one train wreck, this was it. Mm. More of a train? No, I can't say Gohans was a train wreck, because apparently that was intentional. Yeah, no, Gohans has, like, a vision, right? Like... <laughs> Gohans has a vision and is a bad, but like they have a vision. It's fucked up. Yeah, but I, but I don't think this is like a. Vi I think this is just bad. Yeah, like this yeah. is just actively bad. Yeah. All right. So the second thing I dropped was uh, Professor Layton Cat's mystery solving files. Uh, I dropped that because they did five episodes in a row of oh hey it's just this case from the game but animated and I got tired of it so I just stopped caring. Fair enough. Yeah. And then the last thing I dropped was release the spice, which is a terrible pun. It's spice. Right, like spies. Yes, and the OP will endlessly remind you of it. But uh, release the spice is uh, kind of a mess because at least for the parts that I watch, it couldn't decide whether it wanted to be a serious dr spy drama or a fluffy Yuri show. And, uh, none of the characters were any bit interesting at all. And the mismatch <laughs> was kind of frustrating, so I just sort of stopped caring. But apparently, after I stopped, it got really edgy, which is what happens when you're written by the guy who wrote Akamega Kill and Yuki Yuna. And the Yuru Yuri art style just don't work for that. <laughs> God. <sighs> I... Nothing can capture the lightning in the bottle that was Princess Principal. And you know what? Maybe that's okay. Yeah. Eventually, Princess Principal will come back with, like... They're doing, like, the, um... The Girls in Ponzer style, where I think they're just, like, gonna release, like, seven movies. Yeah, and I'm excited for that, but, uh... Release the Spice is, uh... Not a replacement for that. From what I hear, Release the Spice's real achievement is in the music. Yeah, it's music is, uh, it's something. There's a lot of it. 
I mean, as far as I can remember, that's the the style that they went with was used for one song, and they just kept reusing it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it. Meh. Bleh. Well, out of the frying pan, and into the hot fire that is Ace Attorney season two. So, um, Ace Attorney uh, season two is capturing the third game in the series. I'm gonna fuck this up again. Uh, Trials and Tribulations. Right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Phew. So, it's covering that one, and for its first season, it's a little light on the Godot stuff. So, it opened with the, um, the opening trial of the second game, which is the one where Phoenix loses his memory, and it sets up uh, Maggie Bird as a returning character. And from there, so we just finished the Furio Tigre case in terms of the game content. And the the next half of this season is starting straight out with the flashback to Phoenix's first time in court where he's on trial for murder. <laughs> but what I'm more interested in in Ace Attorney Season 2 is the anime-only stuff that they've been doing. Because they... Not only are they adding, like, more stuff that's like, oh, let's explore the characters of, like, Phoenix and Edgeworth as children, and sort of the the way that their relationship has built up since then, they have a full-blown original case added in to finish off this first half of season one. And it is some real, like, it feels like it should take place, like, near the finale of any other Ace Attorney game. Because it involves, uh, it, it happens on a runaway train and involves a conspiracy with the American justice system as a whole. And, like, every piece of it feels like, oh, this is, like, the end of a story where, like, Edgeworth goes to America to investigate this, like, this case that seems to be, like, full of, like, mal- malpractice. And he's, like, basically, like, stealing the spotlight from everyone else who's actually in the case. <laughs> so it feels like an Ace Attorney Investigations case instead. A little bit, yeah, but, like, Phoenix is there. Like, Phoenix is doing the case, but he's there, like, doing the hard investigative work because they're on a runaway train and can't look into anything. <laughs> like, basically, so the guy who owns the, the, the railway station got tried in America for murder and was going to get the death penalty, so he escaped to Japan... Um, because he was, he was naturalized there, so he gets taken to a Japanese prison to be held until he dies, and he runs away, and he hijacks his own train, and invites all of the people involved in the case to his train, so that he can run a new trial to prove his innocence. You're right, this does sound like a season finale. Yeah, it sounds like a finale, and, like, (laughs) it's buck wild that they basically put it right before, like, all of the Godot plot stuff is gonna happen in this, but, like, okay. It's still very fun, and again, it it gives a lot of time to Edgeworth being, like, super cool, because, like, the prosecutor in this case is related to Edgeworth because Edgeworth once owned him so hard in college that the dude escaped to America so he would never have to face Edgeworth in court. Okay, so I imagine that it's Germany in the dub. No, no, he runs away to America. No, no, I mean... Oh. Oh, you're right. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, because Miles goes with the Von Karmas to Germany. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it happens in Germany. Anyways. 
Anyway, so it's it's like that, and that that's really fun. And the other like anime exclusive episode is about how uh, Phoenix and Larry decide that what they're going to do to try to keep in contact with Edgeworth and let him know that like, oh, we're still cool, we're still friends, we still want to you know be best friends with you is like they basically dedicate a song to him on his favorite radio station. Okay. Where it's like this one goes out to him and. Throughout this whole thing, he's like, oh, I do still have friends, you know, I, I haven't lost the, these important parts of my life. And also, he's at the mall with the Von Karmas, while, like, um, Francisca's, like, going around, I want to buy all these things, and I want to go to this restaurant, and we want to do this. Edgeworth, like, helps save a lost dog from someone who's trying to kidnap it for the, uh, the ransom money, and just, like, totally out-debates uh, this, like, old woman with logic <laughs> as a child. It's really good. Nice. And as far as the, the actual game content, I think it's all been very good as well. Like, they've done the cases well. And I'm excited to see what they do for another 12 episodes, because I don't know. I feel like there's probably enough game for those 12 episodes, but there's always the opportunity for something to cut in between. And that's the stuff that I'm really excited for, is like the new stuff that they decide to add in. I don't think that they're going to be able to stretch, essentially, the final case out to the whole season. Because if they're opening up with uh, the Mia flashback case, the stuff that's left in the game is 3-4, um, which is the first case that Mia did, the one with um, Terry Falls, and then the final case. Yeah, you're right. No, they're going to have to do something else, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm, I, I'm really excited to see how that is, because again, I... That's what I'm really, like, getting out of this adaptation more than, like, seeing these in motion, which is fun. Like, Godot in motion is fun. But, like, I also like seeing the buckwild shit that they decide to add to the canon, which it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I hope they do some more fun original stuff, then. Yeah. Now, uh, Hard Swerve, we're getting into, mm, let's say... The fucking wild shows of this season. And starting out, it's Thunderbolt Fantasy Season 2. Alright, so Thunderbolt Fantasy is, if for those who don't know, is Genorabuchi's uh, Wujia puppet show. And it is a really wild use of the medium because it's just a puppet show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. But uh, Thunderbolt Fantasy revolves around two characters, at least at this point. It is uh, Shang, who is a traveler from basically a different country who is traveling with a whole bunch of wizard swords and he wants to get rid of them because he's tired of people <laughs> trying to kill him to get all of the wizard swords. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and the other character is Lin, who is a thief who uh, used to be the world's best swordsman and now he just likes making, uh, he likes uh, tricking villains into making, causing their own downfall because he is an asshole. <laughs> and he decided his purpose in life was to be the biggest asshole in the world. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, this introduces a a third main character, which is um, Lang. Uh, Lang is a bard with a magical talking lute, because Lang is voiced by TM Revolution, who sings the OP of this show. <laughs> yeah, and since it's really expensive to get TM Revolution to voice things, uh, the talking lute does most of his talking. Ah, oh, that rules? Yeah. Also, the talking loot can turn into a sword. Because, of course. Right. Look, given his character in uh, Chaos Dragon, I assume that Genorobuchi really likes swords. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. All right. So, 
basically the opening of this bit is that because Shang crossed the Wasteland of Spirits to get to this other country, oops, he made the Wasteland of Spirits a lot easier to cross, and now people from his past have caught up with him to try and take the scroll full of magic wizard swords. Oops. <laughs> and two of the people that have uh, followed him are Poison Princess, whose name I don't remember, because one of the problems I have with this show, even back in season one, is that the subs use the Chinese names for all of the characters, but the characters are speaking with the Japanese names, so I've had to basically come up with uh, nicknames for everybody to uh, remember who people are talking about. <laughs> so, it's... Yeah, that sucks. And then the other character that came across is the Hunting Fox, who is the most stereotypical corrupt cop you will ever meet in a show, and it's great because he's a huge piece of shit. <laughs> cool. He's just awful. And then the other two major characters are D Kong. Yes, it's D Kong, Donkey Kong, uh, <laughs> who is a monk who uh, is trying to find a who is trying to find the meaning of life because he feels that life is empty and is definitely not based off of the character of Kyrie Kotamine from Fate Stay Night. Mm -hmm. And then the other character is uh, Seven Blasphemous Deaths, which is an evil talking sword that is definitely <laughs> not based off of Gen Urobuchi's character from Chaos Dragon. <laughs> Look, I'm glad that character gets to be in something, like, good. Yeah, yeah, and it's voiced by Aoyuki. All right. Who is, uh, Madoka. <laughs> and now she's an evil talking sword. And, uh, she can drive men to madness just by looking at her. All right, cool. Yeah, so, uh, basically, uh, the main plot is Shang lost some of the swords from his, uh, his magic scroll after getting attacked by the poison princess. And one of those was, uh, the evil talking sword, the seven blasphemous deaths. And it's basically him just trying to clean up this mess and get the swords back. Okay. And it's a lot of fun watching all six of these characters kind of bounce off of each other, and we get to learn a bit more about uh, Shang. We get to learn more about his new com his uh, his friend Lang and his talking loot, and we get to just see more of Lin Setsua, the vape wizard, just dick people over. It's great. So I've heard some criticism of season two that it this is where Genorobuchi starts getting really Genorobuchi. Oh, yeah, it does. Uh, what my biggest problem with this show is that Genorobuchi can't stop killing off female characters because uh, the Poison Princess, who has probably one of the most the most well-realized character arc in season two, uh, she dies. It sucks a lot. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit for the rest of the show. It was it was still a fun watch and it was great seeing um, the actual villain be a really dumb ham, and the the final battle was really fun to watch too, but... Uh, Gedorobuchi, please stop killing off female characters. Please. <laughs> please stop doing that. I thought you got better. I thought you did were doing this better. And then, I guess the other problem is that the whole evil organization that got- that was trying to go after Shang and, uh, and take back the Sorceress Sword Index... That doesn't get resolved in this arc, and it, the ending of the show kind of sets up that, oh, the evil organization is going to come after them in season three, along with uh, a character that returns from the first season, uh, Night's Lament, the demon lady. It turns out she survived after the end of season one, and she's going to help the evil organization get 
the Sorcerer's Sword Index back from Shang, and that's really cool and all, but that's season three, and who knows how long that's going to be away. Mm-hmm. But you don't think that any of this, like, pulls away from your enjoyment of the series? No, it's it was still a really fun show to watch. I still loved watching how cool the puppet stuff is. Uh, Hiroyuki Sawano still got to do his Suono stuff with the soundtrack, and they actually managed to fit in the OP into the show proper, and it ruled. All right, cool. It's just like, oh, yep, that's Genarabuchi writing. <laughs> yep. Genarabuchi, please stop doing that. <laughs> please stop writing. No, just just stop. Work out your issues with having female characters that live, please. <laughs> please. But yeah, it it's one of the better shows I watched this season, but... Arabuchi. <sighs> sure. Now, we want to talk about a show that doesn't have enough female characters to have problems with them. It's JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Golden Wind. <laughs> uh, That's not true. I mean, there's Trish, but like, you know. Yeah, there's the one female character. Also, Thunderbolt Fantasy had one female character and a female-coded magic talking sword. Trish is gonna do a little better than dying. Yes, she is. Thank God. But yeah, so... Um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, Golden Wind, is part five of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure by, uh, Araki. And so we are now a third of the way through the series. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little behind, um, just on one fight so far. But let's talk about how Golden Wind is turning out so far. So we talked about it a little bit during the preview episode. In in contrast to, to part four, which is just a bunch of good boys who sort of, like, stumble into a bunch of, like, wacky adventures, we have a much more directed story, at least so far, in that they're trying to capture um, ancient mafia gold, basically. Also, all of the characters are bad, and they're assholes and monsters. Well, Bruno's a good boy, but everybody else is some flavor of jerk. Yeah, Bruno's good, and, like, Giorno has, like, he's got a good heart, but, like... He will kill a man. He, yeah, he'll he'll kill a man. He's got, like, a, a good story where it's like, oh, I want to become a mafia guy because they seem like they're the real cops in Italy, you know? Like... I want to become a gang star. Exactly. <laughs> but then everyone else is like, I'm going to piss in your teacup, I'm going to say some really rude shit, I'm going to break your, you know, I'm going to... Uh, break your uh, your boombox, like all kinds of shit. I love these horrible gremlins. And they have like backstories that kind of go along with that. Like, like Abaccio has like a story about being a cop who was like who dealt with some corrupt shit and how it like ultimately ended up sort of ruining his life, especially in terms of like his partner. And so like they all sort of have like baggage to them that like explain it more. But definitely they they all took like a different lesson than the characters in part four, where, like, again, they're all assholes. And it's fun to watch them because that dynamic is so different to have, like, just five assholes who begrudgingly work with each other. Yeah. They're all more or less united by, uh, by Bruno. Yeah, and Bruno's a really charming character. Yeah. He doesn't really want to do anything, like, evil or bad. Like, he's like, yes, I have to betray... My mafia family, but that's because I want to start a new one that's better. I want to take the corruption out of this city. Yeah, exactly. I want to be the I want to be the good mafia. Yeah, 
And he he certainly collected a cast of characters that can help him with that. And like we're continually in the point where the stand fights are about half puzzles and half fighting, which yeah. is better than what it'll get eventually. But like it's definitely again a, a continuation of what Part Four was. Yeah, it our allies' stand powers have gotten really abstract. In some ways, yeah, and definitely the villain ones where it's like, you know, the villain for Neurancia is like, oh, I'm gonna make you tiny until you just disappear. Or I squish you. Yeah, and Neurancia's like, I've got a toy plane that can shoot you with bullets. And it tracks you via your heat. Right, so like, we're still getting kind of basic stand stuff, well, it, and then you look at like, Bruno's and like, Giorno's, not really, but like, you're still you're still in the weapon-esque area where it's like, oh yeah, uh, Mista's is just bullets. <laughs> no, no, it's better than bullets. He has six tiny gremlins that can change the trajectory of his bullets. You're right, he has six minions. <laughs> oh no! And he shoots them out of a gun. <laughs> and they ride the bullets. I love his ti- I love that his tiny fucking gremlins, and I love that he has to feed them. Yeah. And also, like, they, like, shoot out with the bullets and they just, like, kick them in the right direction. It's not even, like, curving the bullets or anything cool like that movie wanted. It's like, "Eh, I've just got, like, tiny people that redirect my bullets. (laughs) And he goes up against someone who's like, I specifically can't die by bullet. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, arts and crafts, which is a really good way to, uh, to translate craft work. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you get Zipperman! Zipperman, uh, Lil Bomber instead of Aerosmith. Moody Jazz. Moody Jazz is a good one. Yeah. You know what I like? How disgusting Pulpo looks in animation. (laughs) (laughs) God. Oh. You know what I like? I like the scene where they dance while they're torturing a man. Yeah, to like, almost but not quite a Prince song. (laughs) God. Jojo Part 5 has is a wild show, and it's got a lot of wild uses of color to, to change the entire color palette to show the increased tension, and I still love it when they do that four parts into this. And also, they all dress like garbage. They do. They do. Trish has the closest to, like, a real outfit of anyone, maybe next to, uh, next to Giorno, but she's still got, like, half her ass, like, slipping out of her pants. <laughs> It's, like, wild. Giorno, the members of this mafia dress normally to blend in so that way no one can know who they are. No, no, (laughs) they don't. No, they don't. Like, even Giorno's got, like, oh, yeah, I've got my, I got my titty window on on my suit. And then Bruno's like, ah, I see, a fellow connoisseur of good taste. I also have a titty window. And then, like, you look at the other outfits, just, like, how have they, like, not been caught by anyone as, like, gang members? or? At the very least, delinquents. Fugo and his suit with holes in it. Yeah, it's just a suit with holes, like, all over. (laughs) Mrs. got, like, a terrible half shirt that's long sleeve and a stupid cap. Oh, I love Mr. He's great. Neurancia, I guess, sort of has an outfit. Again, like, there's sometimes outfits, but there's also not. And everyone gets to look like this for this show. Yep. Great. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I'm finding part five a lot of fun. Yeah. It's definitely ramping up sort of the goofiness, and I think that's fine, right? Like, 
JoJo's has always gone on goofiness. This this goofiness is just a different direction of goofy. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a real blast for me because I barely remember any of part five because of the bad translation manga. So it's been a real fresh, nice fresh look for me. Yeah, like how powerful it was that like Pulpo goes to eat a banana and it turns into a gun thanks to Giorno. I forgot You made a man that. commit suicide. Because <laughs> you're like, Oh, he killed an innocent, and I would never do that as a mafia man. <laughs> now it's time to steal his ancient mafia gold. That's good. Uh, yeah. I, d- I don't remember how long it takes before the, the villain pops up, but I'm excited for, like, the 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 extension of the, the story as it is now, just them, like, bumbling their way into fortune, or trying to. It's gonna be a bit. I I hope that in the latest episode we get to, um... The vehicle of transportation the gang uses. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's so much about part five. I'm like, oh, I remember this happening. I don't know when, though. Yeah. Because, like, we have a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. Okay, so without spoiling... What's what's something that you think is going to come up soon that you are hoping to to see animated? I mean, I'm not looking forward to it, but it's one of the parts I remember, and it's just really weird. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to say what it is, because it's... It's something. But, uh... <laughs> but I, I'm looking forward to when everybody learns, uh what the gang's vehicle of transportation is for this show, because it's hilarious. Yeah. I am very excited to meet, uh... I think this is the same one you're talking about. I'm excited to meet Coco Jumbo. Yep, I think that's it. I don't remember the name, but that sounds right. Yeah, Coco Jumbo's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is one specific part that I'm looking forward to seeing animated, and, uh, it's ring, 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 ring. If you know what that is, good god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're gonna have fun. Part part five is gonna get buck wild. Yeah, it's very weird. And then finally, let's talk about. I I feel like this is the other like high profile show just because of the staff that was on it. Yeah. This is Double Decker, Doug and Kiro, which was uh in part done by a number of staff behind Tiger and Bunny, and it shows. It very much shows. Uh, the 3D really shows, though the 3D's gotten better. Yeah, but it's it's still a lot more jarring in Double Decker because it's not like they're in suits, they're just in their battle gear. Right. So sometimes they draw they have like the 3D models with real heads, and sometimes they have it with 3D heads. So yeah. And uh the structure really shows where it takes a hard turn at the very end. <laughs> Yes, yes, the way that the plot, what the plot is and how casually it is described is so incredible. Like, it, it's kind of like it forgets that it set up itself as, like, mostly a comedy and it's like, oh, oops. But, um, <laughs> God, the, the reveal, the reveals, oh my God. It's so good. So Doug and Kirill, Double Decker, is a series about drug cops, basically. Yep. The, the particular, so within this city, they have a team called 7-0, which are going after a highly lethal drug called Anthem, which is causing people to, like, mutate into horrifying monsters that, you know, threaten the city. 
And so the groups, the, the, the duos within 7-0 are like teams that go around and specifically fight Anthem and nothing else. So they have like weird jurisdiction issues that they run into. But yeah, that's the basic plot. And our focus is on the team of Doug Billingham and uh, Kirill Vrubel. Yes. And yeah, so they're, they're our major duo where Doug is sort of like, he, he's definitely the, the veteran cop, but not in the way you'd expect. He's not like a hard ass. He's just like kind of going through the motions. He's like, yeah, I clock out at five. Uh, sorry, folks, I'm done. He's also kind of off kilter. A bit. Yeah, he, he's also, he's also a little off kilter and he's also a lot of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's not, he's not lazy. He's just like, yeah, I clock in, clock out at the same time every day. Mm-hmm. And then you have Kirill, who is an idiot. Yeah, he's just an idiot. And the, the show doesn't, like, shy away from that. They're like, yeah, they're like, yeah, uh, Kirill's an idiot. Yeah, he is, he is very eager. He is very stupid. But he is, uh, he is a mess. But I love this boy. And he must, I'm so glad that he is our other protagonist. Yeah, and so most of the show is like crime procedural sort of stuff where it's like, oh, you know, we've heard about Anthem happening here or there's this weird going on here and they go and investigate and eventually it turns out it's Anthem and like there's this particular group called Esperanza that's like dealing it to all these people because it it does like heighten your senses and like change you like fundamentally as a person but then you take it again and it's lethal and it turns you into a horrifying monster. And so, like, that's the, the general thing is, like, they go to investigate, they uh, corner someone, and then they turn into, like, you know, like a, a video game boss, basically. <laughs> I was about to say a Resident Evil monster, but that works, too. Yeah, very Resident Evil. Like, there's that bee lady and there's just, like, that fat guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that's the most of it until the very end when they remember that, you know, maybe they set up a plot. They didn't really set up the plot, but they think they set up the plot, so they continue on with it. At Double Decker's core, it is a goofy-ass police procedural anime that also pokes fun at a lot of police procedural tropes. And yeah. It does a good job of that, but it also does a good job of, like, giving good character beats to everybody. Yeah, it's very stylish, and it's very fun, and, like, all of the six main characters get time in the spotlight to really show who they are as characters. Like, I really appreciate that all of them are, like, fully fleshed out. Yeah, or at least as fleshed out as you can be for a 13-episode show. Right, certainly. And then it just kind of goes off the wall with, like, this weird, like, alien conspiracy thing that can only be seen to be believed, because <laughs> it comes out <laughs> of nowhere? I mean... It was foreshadowed. Technically, you're right. And they did flash back to let you know that they did <laughs> foreshadow it, but it was bad. <laughs> Again, it's it's just, it's such a hard turn at the end, and it's fine, right? I still enjoy Double Decker. So the first ten episodes and the last three episodes, mm, very distinct products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it's very fun. The narrator is very fun in this series. Um, kind of like with Tonegawa, where the Tonegawa one's just, like, super excited all the time. Like, a lot of the jokes come from the narrator, where it's like, someone will say, it's a long story, and then the narrator will go, that's right, and it's so long and boring that who gives a shit? Moving on! 
Also, there's the fact that, uh, oh, right, one of my favorite narrator jokes was, uh, was when it's revealed that Doug is kind of a jerk. It's like, that's right, Doug's an asshole. And now that you know that, we can actually start the plot. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Like, the narrator's having so much fun, like, basically doing color commentary for the series. Yeah, uh, hold on. I'm pretty sure I know who the, um, uh, the narrator is voiced by, and it's someone very cool. Pretty sure he's the voice of Speedwagon from JoJo. Ah, cool. Also, I want to talk about how the, the like, the Q of the group, you know, like, the, the one who makes all the gadgets, his name is Apple Bieber. <laughs> oh, yeah! It's like, they, they go between, like, real-esque uh, American names, like Travis Murphy and Douglas Billingham, and then they're like, Apple Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just a weird coincidence. Yep. I mean, it is, but still. But yeah, so... <laughs> Doug and Carol's, like, just a lot of fun. Uh, all the characters have a lot of personality. What I And also something I really like is they only have one character who curses, Deanna, and they censor it every time by, like, drawing squiggly white over her mouth when she says it, <laughs> and they also censor it in the, in the audio. It's very cute. Okay, I... I feel like I need to mention this uh, this thing, because I believe when they first were talking about releasing Double Decker, they said, oh, this is a, a, a spiritual successor or something, like, this takes place in the same universe as Tiger and Bunny. No. Uh, no. <laughs> it doesn't. There, there were no connections that I saw. Yeah, no, they can say that, and maybe that's true, but there's nothing to connect them, like... <laughs> like, unless there's also two sons in the Tiger and Bunny episodes, then I can say, yeah, sure, this is in the same universe. Also, that's really insane. Because it correlates with the crazy plot twist. Right. So, yeah, I don't... I don't know! But yeah, it's it's very, like... They can say that all they want, and that's fine, but they never interact. Like, you're not gonna get anything out of it. Yeah. But it was a really fun show. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very good. And uh, just the characters are so fun, like, and they, they play with them so well. Like, there are some, like, again, like, weirdly serious bits that sort of, like, break what feels like the tone of the series. But, like, they're, you know, it's still, like, overall a good whole. Yeah. Yeah, so I was really happy with this show. And, like, I could have done with more episodes, honestly. Like, I kind of, like, oh, that's it? Oh. Yeah, I felt the same way. I, I kind of wish there was more to it, and I, I kind of hope that this team gets to do some more work again soon. Yeah, I'd love to see how their 3D develops, because again, it's getting very good. Yeah. And that's everything. That's anime. Woohoo! And before we go, I have some fan mail that I'd like to read. This one comes in from Friend of the Show, QB. Because if there's anyone I can rely on in this crazy mixed up world, it's QB to send in fan mail. Pop Team Epic and Zombieland Saga are examples of the term I just made up, which is black box marketing, where anime producers tell absolutely nothing about a show before it hits and try to restrict everything so, so that it's a complete surprise. Since this obviously didn't work on either of you for Zombieland Saga, but paid off in significant media buzz for both shows, how do you feel about this as a tactic? And then, uh, continued on, for the record, I think it's real stupid. Does Kado count as black box marketing? Mm, no. Because that just turns... 
I think this is specifically like the first turn, the first episode twist kind of shit, like ah, the Zombie Land okay. saga. Okay. Like the things where you don't know what it is going in, and it like gives you like a genre or something, and it flips it on its head. Okay. Like how Zombie Land saga turned into like an idol comedy thing. Apparently, a very heartwarming one. Or how Pop Team Epic refused to make a real, you know, like a real PV or anything. I mean, that's expected for Pop Team Epic. Right, that, I mean, that relies on pre-existing knowledge of the series, though, I think is what QB is saying. Is like, ah, right, right. For, for someone who wants to know what Pop Team Epic is and, like, watches a preview, no idea. For someone who watches Zombieland Saga, they're like, oh, this looks like a horror thing. Absolutely not. Is that, like, a good marketing strategy? Do you think that this is a good tactic for them to use? Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, okay, I can think of something that this did actually happen for that worked for me last year, and that was Planet With. Because we knew nothing about that before that came out, and that turned out to be really, really good. But again, I think this is a little different where it's like, they didn't restrict the info. They specifically didn't release info because they wanted the manga and anime to be side by side, right? Like, more or less. Right. And it never wasn't a mech thing, right? Like, Right, it just, we just sort of knew it was a mech thing, but that was, like, a couple weeks before it came out. Yeah, so, like, there, there is, like, that difference where it's, like, they don't tell you the, they tell you a genre and you, you come to have expectations and they flip on their head. This is more of, like, the, the bait-and-switch tactic, I okay. think. Yeah. And I think, like, th the issue with that being, like, a viral thing becomes that, the series has then already been spoiled for you. Like, when people go, you've got to watch Zombieland Saga, it's got this huge thing that happens, or like, oh, you got to watch the rap battle, and you're like, why the fuck is there a rap battle in this? Like, that in some ways already ruins the surprise that they're going for. Okay, yeah, I, I get you now. So, I don't know if it's a good tactic or not, like, I don't know if anyone... Like, the audience for Zombieland Saga probably wasn't going to watch Zombieland Saga until they were already told what it was. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's, like, a good enough tactic. Like, there's a good there's a good bait-and-switch commercial to come out of that, where, like, you know, the first 30, the, you know, the first 30 seconds or whatever, like, make it like, oh, it's a big horror thing. And then you just reveal that the whole thing is, like, zombie idols. Mm -hmm. I think that's, like probably the better move to make instead of this, like, bait-and-switch show kind of stuff. Yeah, I I feel like that's true, too, because if you make something too mysterious, then nobody's gonna watch it. Yeah, like, Pop Team Epic had the benefit of already being a thing, so, like, when they make a, a commercial that's just someone being asked about Pop Team Epic and then being kidnapped into a bus, like, that is... Both very and not at all representative of the content of Pop Team Epic. You know, it's, yeah. it's that sort of irreverence. And with Zombieland Saga, it, it is just a huge, big genre bait and switch. And so, like, I think it's better to put your cards out on the table ahead of time than worry, you know, than worry about, like, having that big twist. Yeah, you need something to entice them first. Yeah, like, you can still execute a joke very well with them knowing what's coming. Like, I don't think if they knew that it went from horror to, you know, like, a zombie idol, the the girl walking out of the house, immediately getting hit by a car, and then the death metal opening playing is not any less funny because they know what to expect, right? Like, 
Yeah. That's that's still a proper, like, joke, and you don't need to, like, have it be sort of the shock and awe kind of thing. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I see why they do it, but I agree with QB, it's kind of stupid. Where, like, I, I think you're better off just, like, appealing to the audience, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you need something to, to lure them in. Yeah, you want them to come in ahead of time, you don't want them to hear after the fact, because, like, you miss a couple episodes, you might just miss everything. Like, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, Psychobabble asks, who is your favorite Passione gang member? And I, again, we should restrict it to, like, based on what we know from the first few episodes. I mean, for me, I think I remember liking Mista from the manga, but also for what I've seen so far, I like Mista a lot because he seems like out of the not Bruno characters, he seems like the least assholeish of them. Assholeish of them, but also because I love that he feeds his tiny gremlin bullets. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I have to cook for them before we go, Giorno. I know we're on, you know, I know we're on watching duty, but this is very important. I have to feed my babies." <laughs> and like, he's he's very charming too, because like his big thing is just like. He's superstitious, like, extremely. Yeah, to the point that his six bullets don't- none of them are numbered four. Right, and he's always just like, oh, fuck, a four. He just, like, sees a four, and he's like, ah, oh, Jesus. I can't divide this cake into four pieces. Someone take one! <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's just like, ugh. Yeah, he's definitely the least asshole-ish, but, like, his asshole-ishness comes from the fact that he's got, like, these weird hang-ups. Yeah, and like that's that's a bit more understandable than oh right you didn't see you didn't see Fugo's debut yet. No, but you can talk about it for a bit if you want. I was just gonna say that Fugo has a lot of anger issues. Like he needs to go to anger management class, but instead, like Bruno lets him in and is like, "Okay, it's cool. You can have anger issues. That's fine. You're you're here. You're with us." Okay. Yeah. Though I gotta give credit to uh, Neurancia for starting the dance, like that, and the fact that that sequence in animation is so much more involved, like really adds a lot of character to the fucking like assholishness of these groups as they like sit, you know, they just like mock this dude who's like <laughs> basically dead in front of them. Yeah, <laughs> God, that whole sequence is just so wild that it's not something that you would expect any previous JoJo characters to do. Right, like, Okuyasu definitely he'd, like, you know, like, make fun of a dude and, like, kick him while he's down a bit. But, like, none of them would have, like, a whole dance to go with it. <laughs> uh. Yeah, Mista, I think, is, like, a lot of fun. Just, like, just the fact that he comes with basically six friends. <laughs> Six terrible minion friends. I love that they all have their own personalities, too, at Rules. Yeah, like... <laughs> it's it's really good. Uh, so yeah, we'll give it to Mista for now. Maybe we'll re-explore re this in, uh, in, the, in the next season as we meet more characters. Yeah. And then the last question comes in from Combat Lobster and asks, Who has the best butt? And of course, the answer goes to Kirill, because this is the only one that's shown. <laughs> Like, explicitly shown. Y'all, he just got his ass out. That's another thing that they censor in uh, Double Decker is, like, at some point, for some reason, Carol walks into, like, 
a uh, like a basically like a police uh, a police investigation like naked, <laughs> and they just gotta like cover his balls. Okay, well since you didn't see uh you didn't see Golden Kamui, I have to give a shout out to Tanagaki, where the camera deliberately shows his ass when he gets shot in the ass. And it's really- ah, cool. Yeah, there is a lot of good cheesecake in in uh in Golden Kamui if you want it. It it makes uh no attempts to hide that every single man in that show is an extremely beef cakey man. Is <laughs> extremely in good shape. Mm-hmm. And that's the rundown of all the asses in the anime for <laughs> the fall. All others are fake. <laughs> and I think that's everything. Uh fall was a fall was a pretty good season. Like you know, a lot of these shows had, like, kind of major faults, but, like, they were still very entertaining. Yeah. And in such different ways. I, I really appreciated the the breadth of shows that we had available. Yeah. I'm really glad that there's at least one good junk food show a season that makes me happy that there's just something that I can turn my brain off and watch, and then there's just other stuff that makes me think about it after I'm done watching it, like uh, like Gridman and its big major mysteries going on throughout it. Yeah, and just like a lot of nice stuff too, like Emiya Family or you know Irudoku. Like there, there's like feel good stuff. There's like funny stuff. There's action, you know. And all of it turned out pretty good. Nice, <laughs> good. Yeah. So yeah, and I have not had the time to start on next season. So, oops. <laughs> But I, I did get to see the opening to Mob Psycho Season 2, and I'm very excited for what looks like a, a more character-focused Season 2 than one super-focused on action. Yeah, the, I, I think it's the next major arc in Mob that is one of my favorite parts of, uh, of the manga as a whole, and I'm looking forward to seeing that animated. Because, like, the story in that first episode of Season 2 just so genuine and, like, nice. And I'm sure it's going to turn tragic, <laughs> but like, it's really nice that these characters are real, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, look out because coming at you soon will be the anime of the year podcast where we count down everything from 2018, the good, the bad, the ugly, and more. Finally, 2018 can be over. That's right. We'll close the book again. We never have to think about it ever again. Yeah. Yeah. So look forward to that coming soon with a very special guest. The results may surprise you. But until then, I've been Chorps Away. And I've been Zane Zero. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.